Good evening. Are we all seated? Welcome to the 693rd regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago. And um, I would like to ask you all to rise and join me in the pledge. That one, that one, Larry, not that one. <laughs> I, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. And while uh, our salads are being served, I would like to welcome up Tom Trescott. Tom is our most immediate past president. The operative word is here, operative word is past. Happily operative. Happily. <laughs> um, Tom instituted a um, fun little thing at his meetings last year. And that fun little thing was he would announce a sesquicentennial moment at every meeting. So here he is to continue that tradition. Thank you, Madam President. I ripped this idea off from a bicentennial minute, so I can't take full credit for it. But um, 150 years ago, this country was in, the, uh, in a very contentious uh, uh, presidential campaign. And 150 years ago today, in the New York Times, wrote about a speech of one of the candidates, uh, John C. Breckinridge, and they wrote as follows. Mr. Breckinridge should have answered the question which was put to Mr. Douglas at Norfolk and told the people whether he would favor disunion in case Lincoln should be elected. This is the test question just now, yet he evaded it completely. His speech is full of protectionism of, or protestations of love of the Union and denials that he'd ever conspired against it, yet he is the candidate of a party which declares that the election of a Republican president would justify the slave states to secession. And the public wants to know whether he shares that sentiment or will act upon it. We do not know whether Mr. Breckinridge intends to continue his stumping or not. He made the speech prof professedly to meet certain charges against him as a candidate of the secessionists. We do not think he has done so fully or satisfactorily. Possibly he may be more successful in another attempt. And also 150 years ago today, uh, as part of a reward for his service in the Black Hawk War, Abraham Lincoln was awarded 120 acres in Crawford County, Iowa. Don't go. Oh. Don't leave so fast. Well. I know you want to. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Tom, was, Tom was gracious enough to give me this at the June meeting, uh, the gavel for the new president. And I, and I asked him whether he was really sure he wanted to give this to me after I was called the bus Nazi on the tour for being mean to people. Well, I want to thank you for, on behalf of this organization for doing such a great job as our president in 2009-2010 that we are going to be making a donation in your honor, in your name, to the Mill Springs Battlefield, the battlefield of his choice. Thank you so much, Tom. Well, thank you very much. Enjoy your meal. I'll just make a few announcements while we're having some dessert. I want to say that I'm honored to be president this year, but I also am still the membership registrar. So I'll be looking for you. I'll be looking out for you. 
I've been asked to get our uh, roster out earlier than January. So we're going to be making some phone calls and emails and reminding people. But um, I just want to say, feel free to hand in your renewals to me. I am happy to take them. Um, I would like to ask Jerry Kowalski, past president, to come up. He's got an announcement. Steve Stewart never got to be president of this roundtable. Uh, the lymphoma set in before he uh, could take that office, but he served in just about every other chair. And Steve Stewart went down to Springfield to determine which of the Illinois State Regimental flags was in a condition best suited for restoration a number of years ago. And he came up with the 36th Illinois flag as being the most savable of all the flags at the uh, Capitol in Springfield. And he began a process of engaging people to help support the effort to restore the flag. He succeeded. He did not succeed in his battle with lymphoma. But uh, for the past number of months, actually years now, the flag has been at uh, uh, Cantigny. And now it's being moved to Wheaton, to the uh, DuPage Historical Museum. And on the 23rd of this month, between 6 and 8 o'clock, there is a reception for that flag's unveiling. This roundtable contributed thousands of dollars for the restoration of that uh, flag. It is the first flag of Illinois regiments to be restored, one of the few flags that has been restored because of the great cost. You are all cordially invited to attend that event. And uh, if you have any questions, there's a brochure on the table. Uh, more information is available if you contact me or uh, Sarah Budia uh, at the uh, Wheaton Park District. Thank you very much. Tom Tresca has an announcement for some upcoming virtual book web seminars. Thank you. Um, Saturday, October 9th, uh, Earl Hess, who will be speaking uh, the night before it, uh, for the October meeting, will be at the Lincoln Bookshop um, signing copies of his new book, uh, Into the Crater, The Mine Attack at Petersburg. And also um, at that book signing, we'll have Chris Hartley's new book on Stoneman's Raid 1865. So um, if you can't make it in person, we love it if you can make it, but uh, you can watch online the webcast ask questions uh, as the event's going on, even if you're not there in person, and hopefully buy a copy or two. So again, that's Saturday, October 9th. There's information on it uh, on the flyers on your tables. I uh, hope you can make it, if not in person, then uh, watch online. Thank you very much. Some upcoming events uh, that include our uh, members. As part of the third annual Great Lakes Civil War Forum, our own Rob Girardi will present the engineers at Fredericksburg, and that is tomorrow at the Kenosha Civil War Museum. <laughs> Next Friday, September 17th, uh, at the Salt Creek Roundtable meeting, our own Paula Walker will present a Whitman Sampler, a sampling of poetry from the war years. 
And Tuesday, September 21st, the Lincoln Davis Civil War Roundtable in Alsip, Illinois. Leslie Goddard will present her characterization of Clara Barton. Continuing on, Rob Girardi again. <laughs> Thursday, September 23rd, the South Suburban Roundtable. Rob Girardi is going to give a presentation on William Passmore Carlin. Am I pronouncing that correctly? The Fighting General. Oh, Bob Stoller is here to start promoting our 2011 tour. Rob, you, uh, what about that investigation that's going on tonight? I'm not the only policeman All right. Well, uh, just because we have no imagination, we have our tour coming up. And the reason I say that is because if you enjoyed last year's tour, all we have to do, all you have to do is cross the James River and we start next year's tour. The dates for the Petersburg Appomattox tour, which we have not been to either location since 1985, are uh, April the 27th through May the 1st. Uh, God willing, Ed Bars will be there as a lead guide with, uh, with uh, Will Green as a second. Uh, we'll be going to a number of places, uh, City Point, Petersburg National Battlefield Park, uh, Appomattox, of course, and to the High Bridge, which Ed has told me we've never been to, or he's never taken a group in there. So the dates, once again, are, uh, it'll be two buses. The dates, once again, are, are April the 27th through May the 1st, 2011. We'll be staying in Petersburg, or in Colonial Heights, which is just north of Petersburg. And uh, we hope to have the uh, pricing out to you folks in the next, uh, at, next, at the next meeting, correct? Okay, we'll, we'll try and do that. Thank you. Some sad news over the summer. Um, Hal Ardell uh, heard from Pat Sumner's daughter. She had passed away due to complications after knee surgery. Pat Sumner was our first female president. Women were allowed as members in 1979 and uh, she was president in the 90s, so she was a nice lady. I had an opportunity to spend some time with her on the uh, Vicksburg, Vicksburg tour in 2005, and she will be missed. Want to remind you that raffle tickets are still available for purchase, and all the uh, funds, uh, net proceeds, go to Battlefield Preservation. So you can see Rob Girardi on that. I also want to remind you that um, to turn your cell phones off, and uh, it is now 7.28, according to my watch, and we have a 10-minute potty break before the presentation. Yeah, thank you. Donna is going to go first, then you're going to go second, okay? And then
Oh, I'll, I'll talk to you. Hello again. Donna Tui is on hand here to recognize our guests. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay. They can hear me, Donna. Okay. Mm -hmm. Happy New Year and welcome to the 2010-2011 Civil War Roundtable Year. We have five guests tonight. Our honored guest speaker, Wayne Mahu. Is that, am I saying that right? Not bad. <laughs> oh, not bad. <laughs> Mahood. And uh, Bobby, his wife, and David, son. Where's David? He's going after coffee. Oh, okay. <laughs> and we also have uh, Matt Cole. Where's Matt? Please stand up, Matt. Matt is a friend of John. Um, Another name I might mess up. Ungashik? Good. Good. Okay. <laughs> Close. <laughs> You'd be surprised what people can do to Tui. <laughs> Tuffy, Tushi. <laughs> Thank you. I'd like to recognize Marianne Mahood as well, the wife of David Mahood. You are not invisible. <laughs> Okay, time for a raffle, and that means Larry Gibbs and Cindy Heckler. All right, we have four books to raffle. And let's see. Uh, the first number, the last three numbers are 878. 878. Anybody? Oh, Donna. All right. Okay. Well, we knew you'd win eventually. Okay. Oh, here are the books over here. Oh, I need to get first choice. Yes. All right. You pick one out. All right. The second number. The last three numbers are 771. 771. That would be me. All right. Okay. Ray, we're going to Okay, we'll try number, another number. Um, 849, the last three numbers. 849. Okay. There we go. All right. Okay, thank you. All right, uh, next number um, for the raffle, 913. The last three numbers, 913. Anybody? 913. I'm going once. All right. Let's try another one. <laughs> Ray? Uh, next number, uh, 759. Last three numbers, seven, five, nine. Okay, all right.
And the last uh, number, uh, 839, 839. Didn't do it. Okay, Mary Beth. All right. Okay. Uh, thank you. We raised $105 uh, for battlefield preservation tonight. Thank you very much. It's time for the quiz, and I'd like to uh, ask David Zucker, our quiz master, to come on, come on up here. To answer your question, to answer your question, Hal, pre as President Truman once said, no matter what you do in this world, there's always some dumb son of a bitch who won't like it. <laughs> All righty. Wayne Mahood on General Wadsworth. Where did General Wadsworth meet his death? That was at the Wilderness. Uh, two, was Wad Wadsworth at Gettysburg? Uh, yes, he was. Um, did Wadsworth serve as military governor of Washington? Yes, he did. Uh, was Wadsworth at Chancellorsville? Yes, he was. And was Wadsworth captured by the enemy? Yes, he was mortally wounded and he died in a Confederate field hospital. There was one 100 this evening and that was had by Roger Bond. Um, oh, you I was awake last night. <laughs> <laughs> one member of the round table who will remain nameless missed one question and I am going to frame that because during my, during my nearly 10 years as Inspector General, no, it has been 10 years as Inspector General, until now, he has never missed a question on a quiz. I'm welcoming a native Chicagoan back home. Dr. Wayne Mahood spent some of his childhood and some of his adult years here in Elmhurst, Illinois. He was a uh, social studies teacher at York Community High School in Elmhurst. Thumbs up. Oh, great. And he, he earned his PhD at Syracuse University and pretty much never left New York after that. And taught many years at the State University of New York at Geneseo. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Well done. And uh, he is here tonight. I welcome Dr. Mahood to speak on one of his favorite topics, and that would be General Wadsworth. I'm a, <clears throat> truly honored to be here tonight. Uh, of all the round tables, I couldn't ask for one to be, to be able to speak before. And I want to thank Ray, who's just been so generous and so thoughtful and so well organized and responding to every time I needed any help at all. And Roger, who didn't have to cheat to win, he, was, he earned it the hard way by chauffeuring my wife and Ray to meet in Milwaukee last night safely. <laughs> I also want to thank Larry Hewitt 
for the loan of his projector last night and again tonight, without which this talk would even be duller. <laughs> I want to thank my wife, who has put up with all my fussing, and last night was the uh, co-projectionist, and then my son, who set this up, uh, and his wife, who is, will also support us, which we appreciate. But mostly, I thank you for coming tonight. Um, it's always tricky uh, to come to somebody you really don't know, and is it going to be worth my evening? So we'll try to make it as worthwhile as possible. I'm going to try to see how, with Larry's uh, remote, what happens. Now, uh, if not, we'll blame it on Larry. <laughs> No, I read. <laughs> uh, uh, as you read in your newsletter, uh, Wadsworth had so many aspects to his life and so many characteristics that he remains kind of enigmatic. He does to me after many years of trying to learn more about him. And as you read in there, how would you describe somebody who, at age 29, 11 years after being tossed out of Harvard, met? in a meeting in Boston with former President of the United States John Quincy Adams, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court Joseph Story, Harvard or Massachusetts Governor Edward Everett, the principal speaker at Gettysburg, and the then current uh, Harvard President Josiah Quincy. Well, you start with this likeness and say, why was this ever, why was it there? Why was it at Gettysburg? What was it about this man that made us want to have a uh, likeness for him? You start with his father, of course his mother, Naomi Wolcott. His father, who was a, uh, a hearty and very ambitious, hardworking man, he helped uh, with his brother to settle uh, the area where we live in western New York when he came for a second cousin with 2,000 acres to sell. And then he, in the process, he ended up uh, raiding back and forth between where we were near Buffalo, all the way to Hartford, Connecticut, and then later to England and to Holland to, help, to sell uh, land that his second cousin, once removed, uh, was trying to sell uh, to settle at the, what was called the Phelps Gorham Purchase. But the biggest project the man had was his son, his oldest son, who, as this appears, was a real dandy at one point. You can see what he looks like here. Uh, he was born in 1807, and this was about when he was about 18, when he was tossed out of Harvard uh, for not going to classes, uh, among other things. He had only one grade in almost 18 about a year and a half of school. Um, and his father despaired of what would ever happen to him. And his father alternately pleaded, begged, admonished, and threatened that he was going to turn all of his affairs over to his younger, to James Samuel's younger brother, William. And he was then going to send James Samuel across the river to little places they had over there, and he was on his own. Well, it was not, he said, finally, in one of the letters after Wadsworth was tossed out of Harvard, 
what will your ambition lead you to do? But it wasn't ambition as we normally think of. It was an impetuousness. Everything about him was impetuous. For example, age 28, he built his house. The only thing that he added later was the top floor. This is a 28-year-old when he built this. And with, he supplied it with the most expensive items you could possibly get, including Madeira, Madeira that he was buying in casks. He was described once by George Sidney Fisher, the uh, Philadelphia lawyer diarist, in these terms. He had just, uh, Fish, uh, Fisher had just returned from uh, Geneseo to see Wadsworth. This was in, 1930, in 1837. Wadsworth was 30. Here's what uh, Fisher wrote. He, that's Wadsworth, is a fellow of a great deal of character and ability, and one of those restless spirits who cannot live without excitement. He is always flying from one end of the country to the other, speculating in land, shooting and pursuing all sorts of adventures which live in the backwoods of Fords. He had just returned from bear hunting in Potter County, where he camped out in the forest for several weeks. Yet, he married our, that's Philadelphia's, great beauty, Mary Wharton, certainly the handsomest woman I ever saw, and was such a wife, a child, and a, land, a large landed estate, one would suppose he might be content to remain at home for a month or two, which somehow he was never known to do. Well, that's not true. He was home long enough to sire six children, three boys and three girls. But that impetuous showed up many times, and there was just one anecdote after another. One of them was that um, in his mid-30s, he was coming back from Rochester, New York, to where we live, Geneseo, about 25 miles. And he got tired of, of the coach, stagecoach, which he said took too long. He could walk faster, and he did. <laughs> but one of his <laughs> projects became, as his father had estimated, that someone was going to have to be, he was going to have to be responsible. His father died uh, in his 70s, actually lived a very long time. Mother died relatively young. Two sisters died, his, uh, an older and a younger sister. His younger brother had died, his uncle, and he was then not only the heir, but he was responsible for the whole estate. And at that time, it was probably, uh, eventually he had owned over 300,000 acres, uh, including in Michigan and in Ohio. But he also proved to be a very thoughtful, eventually thoughtful, older brother. And there's a little story that goes with this one, I'll tell you. <clears throat> First, um, his sister, um, Elizabeth, was met by William uh, or Richard Henry Dana, who wrote Two Years Before the Mask. Some of you know that story. He was traveling to New York, to, to near our area, to meet with Mr. Fitzhugh. And he met Fitzhugh on the way, and James Samuel was with Fitzhugh, quote, bearing an invitation from his sister Elizabeth for us to dine with her. We went in our traveling dresses and had a most delightful time. At dinner were Miss Wadsworth, Miss Tickner, Mr. James Wadsworth, and so on. Miss W is a truly lovely creature, sensible, pretty, unaffected, and interesting. I don't know when I've ever been more, more charmed by any lady. And he dismissed James Samuel as being a fine-looking, frank, ready, and pleasant man. Now, 
Why this story? Elizabeth, at age 19, was visited by a Scotsman who became a lord who asked for her hand in marriage, and the old man said no. The Scot came back two years later, tried again, the old man said no. At age 35, she suspensed her and accepted it, apparently. A beautiful home, uh, landed a state of her own, and somehow, we don't know exactly the role that James Samuel played, but he gave her hand in marriage to that Scot Lord. This is at age 35. <clears throat> Sadly, I'll, I'll leave, I better leave. Sadly, she died in childbirth. Now, one of the things to tell that story is that he came back from the wedding white-haired, age 43. Here is an explanation. It came from our local newspaper. <clears throat> Mr. Wadsworth arrived at the village on Saturday afternoon last, and the appearance was a signal for general rejoicing and congratulations on the part of our citizens. Repeated charges of discharge of cannon shook the village and surrounding country. The bells pealed out a lovely peal and greeting, and bonfires and illuminations in the evening made the streets as light as day. Mr. Wadsworth met the fellow citizen at the American Hotel in the evening to exchange congratulations on his safe delivery from dangers. He told us the narrative of the, his experience, and it went something like this. He, on the 28th of December, he left Liverpool and the ship Atlantic. They made it almost to Nova Scotia when they hit heavy winds, gales, and heavy seas. The engines stopped. They then had to put up sails. Wadsworth helped put up the sails, and after a treacherous journey, they ended up back in Ireland and started once more. 63 days later, he came home after he started out, and the only change was the gray hair, age 43. But it seemed, and I would suggest strongly, fitting for this kind of man who, had, who was the dandy, but now was the founder of the first bank in, in Geneseo, actually uh, one of the first in our county. He helped found a canal that went from the famous Erie Canal south he founded an iron mill in Buffalo. He helped found two universities, University of Rochester and University of, of Buffalo. Additionally, his opinion and money were sought by individuals of almost every way of life, including locals, state officials, national officials, including Martin Van Buren, with whom he was very familiar, and Abraham Lincoln. In fact, in 1862, contrary to his nature, he was nominated for the only office he was ever to hold, or to run for, and that was for governor of the state of New York. He'd never campaigned. He was asked to serve because he was known as a prominent black Republican. However, as he testified at the Freedmen's Bureau in 1863, at the beginning of the war, I was hardly a Republican. I thought slavery should be restricted to the ground where it stood. I dreaded insurrections, massacres, and violence. But by 62, he had changed his mind and decided that he was a total abolitionist. But he had also, before that, made a name for himself, at least in New York, by agreeing to serve as a delegate to the Peace Conference in Washington in 1861 in January. Remember, and he was one of those who very vociferously 
argued against any attempts to, con to appease Confederates. But as I said, he did not campaign. He made one speech, and that was in Washington, of all places. No one's going to vote for him in Washington. But everything about him, I've, I've felt, was large, including his, his, his uh, figure. But I have found only one pretty good description of him, and it runs like this. It was an aide who had gotten to know him well in Washington. He was six feet in height, of a spare but well-knit frame, with blue eyes, white hair, sideburns, a big aquiline, a, a thin aquiline nose, and an amiable, frank, and firm expression of countenance. He was also known as very unaffected. Another thing about him was that he seemed to have this philanthropic spirit that his father really wanted to imbue in him. And it showed up in, in, in the way he also treated the soldiers. For instance, in one episode, uh, he was to give orders to his men for a march. And they were told in those orders exactly what they were to wear. So he had his aide put all that equipment on him. And he stood and marched for an hour to see what it was like. When he got done and that hour sweating, he said, they can't wear all that. They'll be exhausted. So he just cut the orders to what they wanted them to, to take into battle. So he was known as one who would do whatever was necessary for those around him. And couldn't he actually brought water, the first water into the village. Um, he uh, gave land for the, the Catholics so they could have a place to, to, uh, to, to worship. But in 1861, he agreed to be a, a, a volunteer as an unpaid to serve as an, an aide to Major General Irwin McDowell at First Bull Run. An unusual role for a man, a 53-year-old millionaire. His will in 1856 put him at 1,300,000. Translated in our terms today, about 30 million. So he was an aide, 53 years old. Most aides were young expendables. But it also brought him to attention of others. And in turn, he was made a brigade commander after Bull Run. As was his want, he not only himself served, his sons had to serve as well. Charles Frederick, his oldest son, became one of his aides initially. His second son, Craig W., became an aide. And eventually, after James Samuel's death, his youngest son, James, became an aide to, to Governor Warren. He also strongly encouraged his son-in-law to join. Uh, and they, they'd served their terms well. But uh, one of the first responsibilities he had was as a brigade commander. And he made it clear before he could take on that kind of a role, he needed aides who were not only very responsible, but very capable. And one of the aides, and I think it's the, the man on the second on the left, was fifth in his class at West Point when he resigned to join the Army. A second one was the second fellow, second from right, and that's his, his second son, Craig W. But he also 
the, the lounger on the side was his commissary. He was the uh, manager of the finest hotel in New York City. Wadsworth did like to eat well. <laughs> so in 1862 in March, he was appointed military governor of DC. The number is always unclear in my mind, and it'll be asked every time, was he true, just a political general? He certainly was well known in politics. He certainly had the ear of Lincoln at some point. He certainly had Stanton's ear. Um, and I learned, as I, I'm sure all of you who've written books know, you learn after you've written something what you should have known. <laughs> and one question in my mind was, why would he have ever served under Urban, Urban McDowell? He had no military experience whatsoever. He was just a volunteer. After the book came out, I got a letter from a woman who's an ancestor of a woman by the name of Jesse Burden. Jesse Burden's father was a major iron worker, metal or iron manufacturer for the Union Army. And his daughter, one daughter, was Irvin McDowell's wife. Okay, so you have that relationship that seemed to go with it. But also, there's no clear, no, very clear to others that Wadsworth had led uh, a big estate. He knew how to manage men, and that reputation had, had been with him many times. And so as military governor, he was responsible for the safety of Washington, D.C., when it was still a rather treacherous time. All the troops coming into and out of Washington were his responsibility. And at one point, he was responsible for 23 incomplete infantry units, four artillery units, eight cavalry units. He was also responsible for the old Capitol prison. So all spies were brought to him and had to be imprisoned and taken care of, fed and so on. That was his responsibility. Um, all escaped blacks were his responsibility. There was responsibility to send them back in the fugitive slave law, which he was very hesitant to do. He also had to take care of two spies, uh, Bell Boyd, who you may have known the name of, and Rose Greenhouse. They gave him more problems than any of the other prisoners he had. And as soon as he could get them out and paroled, the faster it was, the better. And he served until till, uh, 1862, until um, November. And then he was inactive again. He was in another appointment. He spent his time in Washington, undoubtedly um, working towards some kind of command. And shortly, he was given a command. Of all, uh, of all units, he would be in the First Corps, commanded by John Reynolds, and he had the First Division. And he may, he, the, of those two uh, brigades, the first was, as you know, the Iron Brigade, which was the 2nd, 6th, 7th Wisconsin, the 19th Indiana and 24th Michigan, and then Cutler's Brigade, which was the 95th, 76th, 147th, and 14th New York, the 7th Indiana, and the 56th Pennsylvania. These were the two, and they would be the first infantry units at Gettysburg on the field. Um, why he there is still, again, questionable, but there was no question that there was an influence that was played along the way somewhere uh, by others uh, who were serving under him. But also, 
he's got to know, he was well known and influential enough that John Gibbon, who had been commander of the Iron Brigade when he received that appellation, um, re owed his star to Wadsworth. He complained to Wadsworth one time that there was no senator who could represent him. He was from North Carolina. Therefore, he had to have somebody take his, play, his case, and Wadsworth did, and subsequently went to Stanton, and uh, uh, Gibbon received his star. I said, Wadsworth first, his, actually, some, you, some, you were right in a couple of those. He was at Fredericksburg, but very, served uh, almost no combat. At Chambers, or at uh, Chancellorsville, he was in combat, even though that First Corps was not very involved. And at one point, uh, uh, Wadsworth's reputation for impetuousness was confirmed when his, the troops were to, to get across the, the, at Pollock's Creek, across the, Rapp, the Rappahannock. The first group tried to get across, and they were they fired on so severely that they, they stopped that crossing. They tried again, and Wadsworth said, there's no way I can stand and let my men get killed without being with them. He jumped in the boat. Now, why you'd stand up makes no sense whatsoever, but apparently he stood up and went across with them. When his horse would not go, he said, throw him in, and he jerked the horse, and away they went. And it was said then, he'll never survive the war, which was true. So Gettysburg truly became the first uh, combat experience where he would have a leadership role. And you remember, most of you know the, the, the story about Henry Heath's uh, division of, of uh, A.P. Hill's Corps came strolling down the, the Chambersburg or Cashtown Pike uh, expecting to find just uh, uh, Pennsylvania militia. And he did not, as you know. Instead, he ran into Buford's ca uh, Cavalry Division. Wadsworth was, uh, the First Corps uh, was down here at, at, around Marsh Creek. They were the closest Union infantry to Gettysburg. And so um, Reynolds called, uh, Reynolds conferred with Buford. Reynolds called on the First uh, Corps, First Division, Wadsworth, to come there. And leading him onto the battlefield itself, and that was, he started with the First, uh, with uh, the Second Brigade um, Cutlers, and he was led onto the battlefield by his second son, Craig W who was then an aide to uh, Buford. Now, remember this story. I'll use this to give a little bit more uh, idea of where they were coming. They came from down here, went across lots, up here to Willoughby Run. And the first was, was Cutler's uh, brigade came up here. Four of, the, of his uh, regiments were here. Two were over here. And the Iron Brigade was over here uh, between the Fairfield and, and uh, Cashtown Pikes. Um, it appears that Reynolds was actually positioning the second uh, Wisconsin here when he was killed. So therefore, he is no, there's no immediate commander of the First Corps. For some reason, uh, Wadsworth thought he was, started to give orders, and someone said, no, Doubleday, who he had replaced as a brigade commander, was actually um, superior, superior to him in rank. So he then turned over the rank to the command of Doubleday. The battle uh, at first uh, was, was successful for the, the uh, First Corps, 
Wadsworth's uh, division. But they ended up going back here to McPherson's Ridge later morning. By noon, they were still being pushed back, but they were winning. Uh, and one of the major moments there was when his uh, sixth Wisconsin and the, 19th, and the 14th Brooklyn and the 95th New York managed to nab the second Mississippi and, and uh, Major Blair in this, um, the old unfinished railroad cut, which the Union at first thought they were going to occupy and found that was a mistake. Of course, if you look at it today, it doesn't look nearly as menacing and as, as uh, much of a, uh, as a trap as it, is, as it was then. So uh, excuse this poor, uh, what was poor a slide, but what you had by late morning, Wadsworth was still very confident that they were going to be able to, to hold off. But by shortly thereafter in the afternoon, all of Hill's Corps was up. Ewell's Corps had come down uh, from the north, had smacked into uh, the 11th Corps. They began pushing back, and before long, Wadsworth, uh, here was Rowley, Wadsworth, and Robinson, and they were all pushed back to back through the, the village and back down to Culp's Hill in a varying degrees of order. For the most part, probably no order. But before they, uh, before they left, and I use this because I'm trying to figure out there different explanations why he was, what he was pointing to. I want to think, and no one's ever said, that he was pointing the last, his leaving the battlefield that day, he wanted to fire the cannon before he left. And he said to Doubleday, tell Doubleday I don't know a damn thing about strategy, but I want to give those rebels hell one more time. <laughs> so I think this is why he was pointing. But he did get off the field safely and, <clears throat> in fact, um, survived another charge by Allegheny Johnson on the 2nd, where uh, Wadsworth was, again, too far exposed to, to the battle, but survived it. Unfortunately, uh, his, his division was decimated. And as you know, it, it didn't survive the reorganization in 1864. Um, when the 7th Indiana, which had not been the combat, came up, they said, we are so sorry we didn't get here in time. And he said, I'm not. You're still alive. What they say about Wadsworth was he was still full of fight. And when Meade did not pursue Lee's uh, retreat faster, he resigned. He submitted his resignation and went up the ranks to Stanton, but Stanton refused to accept it. Instead, Stanton said, with your background in the military, but also as a landed gender, uh, gender I want you to, to uh, go to the Mississippi Valley and examine the status of freedmen and the drilling of black troops. And from October through December, he went up and down the Mississippi inspecting the, the camps and the military training, and then returned in December, wrote his report, then served as a, uh, a, a court-martial and chafed from inaction. And he, they said that he was in Washington almost daily, looking for some time to get back in action. Um, it appears also, and it's quite a question, why they would reappoint him, 
which they did in the spring campaign. And one of the arguments was that morale was low. And the Iron Brigade among them wanted him, were quite happy to have him back. And the, so he was then, remember after reorganization, a couple of things happened, or a number of things. First, Ulysses Grant was made Army Commander of the Union Armies. Second, he began his planning of, of the, uh, that, what was going to follow in the spring campaign, the Overland campaign. So Wadsworth then was appointed 4th Division Commander, 5th Army Corps. Remember, the five Army Corps in the Army of the Potomac were disbanded, and then you had just the 1st, the 5th, I'm sorry, the 2nd, 5th, and 6th. So the 1st and 3rd were disbanded. So Wadsworth now was serving under Governor Warren, 20 years his junior, and was quite happy to do so. Most of you know the situation then that, that uh, Grant faced and the Union Army faced. And the plan was then to send Siegel, what they call, down the valley to keep the Confederates occupied in, in this area. Here's Frederick, here's, and then Burnside was going to come down from above Washington with his Ninth Corps down here. Um, Sherman would be going into Georgia in the south. Meade then was going to interpose his Army of the Potomac between Lee and Richmond to try to force a battle out in the open. And again, reviewing what just before the battle in early May, we had Sedgwick's 6th Corps, Warren's 5th, Hancock's 2nd, and then Burnside was coming down from Washington. They, armies had been divided by the Rapidan River from December until March, until May. Uh, Ewell's Corps, 2nd Corps, was here. Now, this is Clark's Mountain. Uh, the Orange Courthouse is here. Fredericksburg's over here. Chancellorsville's here. Uh, Hill's Third Corps was down here, and Longstreet was just coming back from the Western Campaign. Now, the plan that was actually devised by uh, Andrew Humphreys for Meade was to send Warren's Corps down the, the Fifth Corps, down the Germana Plank Road to Wilderness Tavern, and then they would take the Orange Turnpike, or Turnpike uh, over here to the Orange Courthouse. Sedgwick's Sixth Corps would follow, and Hancock would go through Ely's Ford down here so that they would not get jammed together in the wilderness. They knew better. And so he was come down here to the Carpathian uh, Road. All was well if they could get through this area right in here known as the wilderness. It's 15 acres. Now, most of you know this is just this is one road divided into two. The plank road were loaded wagons between Orange Courthouse, Fredericksburg, and the other road was the turnpike coming back. On May 3rd, Wadsworth sat down for what he thought might be the last time he'd have a chance to write a letter home. And here's what he wrote. My dear wife, I have just received your, your most ki kind letter of April 30th, Saturday. We have just received March orders to move at 12 tonight, and all is bustle and confusion. Still, I withdraw my mind from the scene and the duties of the hour a few minutes, my dear wife, to tell you that we are all well. Tick, that's Craig, is with me. 
and in the best of spirits, we feel sure of victory. I wish I could tell you how much I love you and our dear children, how anxious I am, I am that all should go well with you, and that you will all live in affection and kindness, and then sounding like his father, and that none of our dear children will ever do anything to tarnish the good name which we have and hope to maintain in the future. Write a kind letter to dear Jimmy, and, and then uh, my love and affection to you. Kiss Nancy and Lizzie, my, my loving wife. This was, as she wrote, his last letter to me. All went well at first. They made it to Wilderness Tavern on the Orange Turnpike on the 4th, late on the 4th. And they were then prepared to go an easy trek then down the Turnpike and the Plank Road. One problem was they had to come down and through this is what it looked like apparently at one point. At least Bob Crick thinks this is the best illustration of what the Plank Road looked like in 1864. Now that means you had to get 50,000 men roughly, and about almost 3,000 wagons down this way. And they were successful to this point. However, as you know, on the 5th, before Warren or Sedgwick was really ready to go uh, down uh, their advance, Ewell struck. And both of them, Sedgwick and Warren, said to Grant, what shall we do? And he said, we came here to fight. So start fighting. They said, we're unready. And he said, it doesn't make any difference. Get ready. They were not ready, and that's quite clear. Also, Burnside had not arrived as this appeared until later. But also, what was happening is that Hill had arrived on the plank road. So the possibility was that Ewell and Hill could create a pincer movement and trap two di divisions, uh, two corps right there, and just destroy the, the Army of the Potomac. Because Hancock had, as told, had been ordered down here. He got down here before in the wars the battle started and had to come up here at the last minute. Now, also, I'm told, and, and I was told to take this picture because, again, this is what much of it looked like when you got off the, um, got off the turnpike or the plank road, which made commands very difficult. Compasses were useless. Um, the noise also exacerbated because everything became denser, noisier. All right, on the battle, on this, I'm sorry, is a poor slide. Wadsworth started down the, the uh, turnpike, and he was to uh, meet Griffin on his right, closer to the turnpike, and uh, he was to, uh, the, on the left, he was to meet up, and the problem was, that he got lost in the, the, uh, in the wilderness there, and instead of going almost straight west, he ended up going southwest. In the process, Daniel and Battle and Dor and Dole's men started hitting in here. And at first, they were successful. The Union was successful. But then, as they started toward the Higgerson farm, they're still farther isolated. Uh, Gordon's men came out, and now he had four, four brigades after them. And this was the first retreat of the Iron Brigade and that division. And it was demoralizing. Wadsworth's division was knocked all the way back then to the intersection of the Turnpike, that's the southern route, and the Brock Road, which would be on the, on the east. 
So on the 6th, uh, the battle was uh, begun about a little earlier than they intended, but about 5 o'clock. Now Wadsworth was told, you are now to unite with and coordinate with Hancock. You will have all the troops north of the, turn of the plank road. That included his uh, Cutler's Iron Brigade, what was Cutler's 2nd Brigade, uh, now Rice's, Stone's, and then Baxter's from, from Robinson's division. And early in the morning, by 6 o'clock, all was well. They had advanced carefully, and by around between, sometime between 6 uh, and 7, it's not clear exactly when, but about that time, they had struck with the Second Corps and had pushed the Confederates back about a mile from the Brock Road, Brock Road and the uh, uh, Orange Plank Road, which they, where they had been the night before. However, by around 7, Longstreet's Corps had a most, or, uh, Longstreet's Corps had begun to arrive. And they smacked into Baxter's first and then put, knocked them completely out of it. And then uh, there was confusion and there was a pause to reorganize. And during that pause, Wadsworth sat there and, and the story is told by his son, munched on a hard, hard tack and said how tired his 56-year-old body was after being up about 36 hours and fighting for almost 18. He had fought in the late in the afternoon of the 5th. About noon, the battle resumed. And it became, if anything, more confusing and more dangerous in a lot of ways. The smoke was hard to, to penetrate. Fires began springing up. Men were being burned uh, in, the, in the fires. And Wadsworth, his division now, had been knocked back almost to the Brock Road. In a sense, he felt he had no... Um, he had no troops of his own, so he borrowed them. First, he borrowed the 57th Massachusetts, and they uh, were struck by a, Longstreet's, part of Longstreet's Corps, which smashed into them from them, had actually flanked them, came around and flanked them. So then Wadsworth um, grabbed hold of, the, or went after the 20th Massachusetts. They said, no. Were Webb's command. He said, I am responsible for all the troops north of the, of the plank road, including Webb's. The colonel who was remonstrating with him said, no, no, we we're told to stay here. And he said, if you won't take them, I will. He ordered them up, mounted his third, we're told, third horse of the day, and impetuously rode into his death. It appears from the recounts that we have that the horse that he was riding bolted. He bent down in the process and was shot in the forehead and, and went, the bullet went through his head. Um, he lay mortally wounded for about two days, but yes, he was in all respects captured. He was taken to a Confederate uh, medical uh, tent and uh, actually he was found a, couple of times. The first time he was found lying there, someone realized, looked at his effects and found out who he was. G made a sheet of paper and tacked it to his body. Now some say he tacked it to another thing. Then they made a little tent over him and stuck a couple of rifles up to make a shelter for him. 
Then somebody said, no, let's move him. And they kept finding him. Then they finally moved him to this Confederate medical hospital um, where he became a, a bit of curiosity. A number of people came in to see what this, gen this, this millionaire looked like. And so uh, uh, it was a chance to study him. But they also said uh, some different accounts over the degree to which he was uh, conscious. At one point, one individual, Confederate, said he actually was answering my questions up to a point, and like he just clammed up, didn't want to reveal any more about the Union's plans. Another said he just mumbled. Um, he was observed by a, uh, a regimental captain who was a doctor who said that uh, it was quite clear that he was not conscious during that time. But he did, had some funny mannerisms about him. Well, within days, after his death, the first Fort Wadsworth was created near the Petersburg battlefield. So as you go down there near Yellow Tavern, you'll take a look and see this, which still exists. The second one was uh, in, uh, created in, on Staten Island, which still exists as a fort. The third was in South Dakota, and that no longer exists. The fourth was in, of all places, South Carolina, during World War II. The only explanation is his grandson had, um, was instrumental in creating the draft. <laughs> so there were troops, army troops, stationed in South Carolina at Fort Wadsworth. After his uh, body was recovered, and it took finally a, a, uh, Lee's intervention, Meade kept asking, Mary, Mary uh, Wadsworth, kept appealing to Meade, and Meade appealed to Lee, and he said, I can't do anything until the battle's over. Eventually, though, he, his body was brought back through New York City, where he lay in state for a period of time, through Albany, and then through Rochester near us, and finally to his home, and then he's buried in the Wadsworth grave, uh, where a relatively small ceremony was held for him. But a much larger ceremony was held in 1914 when this beautiful monument was created. Uh, by then, you remember, there were a number of monuments being created in Grettysburg. Uh, this was one of the later ones, actually. Uh, in attendance were his only survivors, and this is Jimmy, who had become an aide to Governor Warren in 1865. Uh, his wife, Maria, their son, uh, James W. Jr., who was then, who would be elected U.S. Senator from New York in November of that 1914, that same year. His son, James Jeremiah, Maya, who succeeded Henry Cabot Lodge as U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. And there, his daughter, Evelyn Evie, who was married to Stuart Symington, who was Secretary of the Air Force under, under Truman, and who was later U.S. Uh, Senator from Missouri, and whose son um, wrote the foreword to the, my book. <laughs> in 1936, the ex-Senator, then a congressman, traveled down to the Wilderness Battlefield and asked um, why there was no monument to his grandfather. And they said, well, because he wasn't he didn't die in the battlefield. The park is not where he's there. He's outside the park. 
And they said, well, what's it take? And they said, well, he had the park would have to own it. So the senator and his sister bought six-tenths of an acre, <laughs> built a monument. And so now the, grand, the grandson was satisfied that his grandfather was remembered. Then um, in, eight, in 1989, our town celebrated its bicentennial. And it, the important thing was to recognize the Wadsworth who had come there and founded the town. But also, while they were at it, the, the James Symington, Wadsworth Symington, who did the foreword, had met a fellow by the name of McCracken, a, 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 a Virginian who lived near Spotsylvania. And they began talking, and the, the McCracken said, Wadsworth, he said, oh yeah, oh yeah. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it was my answer, ancestor that buried him until the Union could, could save him. And so he said, well, how'd that happen? He says this, that when Wadsworth, the military governor of Washington, D.C., McCracken was captured as a spy. He should have been imprisoned by all rights. He was taken to Wadsworth. Wadsworth interviewed him and was satisfied that he was, a, uh, as he said, a farmer and said, go with my blessings. Just don't take up arms against this. And so McCracken felt that's the least he could do. So he, when he heard that Wadsworth had been wounded, went to that hospital, military hospital, and tried to give him some milk and something else, but uh, Wadsworth couldn't handle it. So um, he said, when he dies, let me know. I'll be here, and I'll come and bury him until the Union can take care of him. So they had a little bit of a reunion in that ceremony. All right. Uh, Brand to close. When you go to... Gettysburg next time. Be sure you go on Reynolds Avenue, take a look at this monument to a man who said, my obligations are manifest. He was public-spirited, and as the minister at his funeral said, he was an aristocracy of the only, he was an aristocrat of the only aristocracy the U.S. can harbor, one who wants to be based to judge on his merits. So think of Wadsworth when you visit Gettysburg. Thanks for staying awake. Multi did well. Okay. We have time. We have, we have time, time for a few questions. Maybe I preface it that I can answer. <laughs> okay. First hand up. Given, given this business and organizational background, after he was in a position of command. Yes. Uh, yeah, this goes back and forth. A, a per, a, a, another, another information you can get about him is um, in Colonel Wainwright's uh, book. Somebody help me. Di Diary of Battle. Yeah, Diary of Battle. Uh, Wainwright does as good a job as anybody, and he says he really didn't know strategy, but he did know how to command. He knew how to lead troops, and he could see where the troops should be. So in that sense, um, I would give him some credit. But beyond that, no, I don't think anybody would say he was a, a, a strategist at all. Maybe a tactician, maybe. Yeah. Bruce? Yes? Was he considered for command of the First Corps after Gettysburg at any time? 
Not to my knowledge. Nope. Nope. There's nothing to indicate that he was. Not you're, you're, this is Nevada, you said. Uh, um, not to my knowledge, but uh, the Wadsworths. Uh, I don't get to the Wadsworths came in eighteen in sixteen thirty two, and they actually split. A group stayed in the Massachusetts area. Another group went to Connecticut, and then they began spreading from there. Um, uh, Longfellow was a Wadsworth. Um, and you'll see the name Wadsworth just uh, all over the place. Uh, but I don't know as any direct contact, but I would guess there had to have been at some point. I mean, the, the branches that split. Many of the towns along the Transcontinental Railroad were named after Yes, that, could, that could, could well be. Yeah. But otherwise, I don't really know. Uh, I, every once in a while, somebody will say, did you know there was a Wadsworth Library? That's what I heard last night. I had no idea. It's in Racine? Wasn't that what we heard? It was last night we heard that there's, there's a Wadsworth Library and named after this, this Wadsworth family. So, um, don't know. There's a Wadsworth, Illinois? Okay. Yeah. Yes, sir? County? Livingston. Yes, right next to it. Or, I'm sorry, it would be almost kitty corner from it. Yeah, Livingston, Ontario, uh, Monroe. How do you know Wayne County? I grew up there. Oh, oh. where, what town? Uh, Marion, New York. Sure, oh, okay. Yeah, you know, Geneseo is just straight south of, of Rochester, about almost 30 miles. Yep, yep. Very cool. Oh, way over there? Oh, sorry. Very much so. That, that comes through many, many times. Uh, uh, there's a, old daddy was a, was a term that was often used. Now, that's not so unusual that you can hear that. But what, the things that they remember, for instance, one was, <clears throat> I think this was, oh, this was after Fredericksburg. This was a mud march. They were told to start marching the road, and he said, hell, you can't get down there. He said, everybody knows that. And he said, are you willing to cut down some trees? And she said, sure. And they cut down the trees and built their plank road. But he was helping. He showed them how to cut them. He showed them where to put them and so on. Um, another time, oh, during that same time, he, um, the, the horses couldn't pull the wagons. So he, he um, as he often did, went out of his way and hired some oxen. And they thought that was the greatest thing in the world, him talking to these oxen, which actually got the wagons out. Um, at Gettysburg, on the way out, no, on the way, on the way in, um, his men were running out of shoes. He went up to a, a farmer and said, we need some shoes. I want you to round up as many shoes as you can. He said, no. And he said, take your shoes off. And he took the shoes and gave them, and, but was paid. He always paid whatever, whatever he did. And in fact, I think I told the story. Uh, in uh, I maybe mean, I didn't in uh, 
In April of 1861, remember when the 6th uh, Massachusetts was assaulted in Baltimore and the rails were torn up between Annapolis and Washington, he ferried a boat from New York City, took $27,000 of his own money, which would be about $600,000 a day, to ferry the men to Washington. He was later uh, compensated most of the money back. But then he helped. He, part of the men he hired were railroad men also to go along with them, and they helped, he helped them build the, the rails. So he was known as a man who really trusted and thought uh, well of his men. I think that did have his, re, his reinstatement in spring of 64, I think, was largely responsible because of the morale question. They thought he, was, he could help their morale. No one was for a while, <clears throat> but um, there, was a, there was a dispute, and neither one of them was, was in agreement on this one. Doubleday said, uh, Reynolds said, watch for the Fairfield Road. We've got to defend against the Fairfield Road. Wadsworth said, no, they're coming down the Cashtown Pike. We've got to put the men there first. Um, and in fact, he was right on that one. But that's the only one I know, I think, where there was really a command question. But he, had to, he didn't, in, in turn, because um, Doubleday outranked him. He did go, then go ahead. And that was the only dispute between them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Again, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ray. Sanford, on behalf of the Civil War Roundtable Chicago, September 10, 2010, Dr. Wayne Mahood, we present this med medallion. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate you. Thank you. Good evening, folks. See you in one month. Thank you so much. And and I want to tell you that you were so I was